Welcome, fellow crime addicts, to our weekly CA meeting. I'm Kylie. And I'm Tay. Grab a cup of coffee. And and let's get get our fix. Welcome back, addicts. So today we are talking about the first woman to be executed by lethal injection. Crazy! But today we are drinking just an amazingly simple almond and oat milk hazelnut latte. If you are at all interested in knowing some delicious at-home recipes, some of my favorite products, you can actually head over to our website at crimeaddictspodcast.com. We want to give a huge shout out this week to our fellow crime addicts, specifically G Jeep exclamation point, KCIE4, Mo Love 13, and Shandy. They have rated, reviewed, and shared our content across all social media outlets, and we couldn't have done this without your continued support and willingness to spread the word about our podcast. For your chance to get a shout out on our next episode, please go like, follow, rate, review, and share across all social media platforms. You can find us at Crime Addicts Pod on iTunes, Twitter, Facebook, and IG, or at our website, crimeaddictspodcast.com. You'll find there a spot for our addicts where you can submit case recommendations. There is also a beautiful donate button. And if you're an Amazon shopper, click on our Amazon link and it will redirect you to the Amazon site or app. Simply add your items to your cart and check out. This process will help support our show and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So Margie Velma Bullard was born on October 23rd, 1932 to farmers Murphy and Lillian Bullard. She was the oldest girl and second of a large family of nine children. Her parents, siblings, and friends would always call her Velma. When Velma was born, the Bullards lived in an unpainted wooden house in rural South Carolina. The home had neither electricity nor running water. Unlike many farm families, they did not have an outhouse. Velma's father, Murphy, his parents lived in the home and so did his sister, Susan Ella, who was disabled because her arm and leg had been shriveled by polio. As the Great Depression worsened, Murphy found it impossible to make a living from the sale of the cotton and tobacco he grew. He sought and found work as a logger in a sawmill. Through this, Murphy was able to move his family into a tiny house close to town. Here, his third child was born. Then, Murphy got a job in Fayetteville in a textile mill and moved his family back to his parents' home. Murphy's father died shortly thereafter, and his mother followed her husband to the graveyard in less than a year's time. The Bullard family was organized along traditional patriarchal lines. Murphy was the undisputed king of whatever shabby castle his family occupied, and Lily was the submissive wife. He was an easily angered and hard-drinking man when he did not get his way and a strict, unbending disciplinarian with his many children. He was not afraid to enforce physical punishment, often leaving markings. One thing that especially peeved him was a kid with a smart mouth, and both of his oldest children, his son, Olive, and his daughter, Velma, were known in the family for their tendency to give dad backtalk. However, Olive believed that Velma did not get punished nearly as often or as severely as he did, which led to a lot of conflict between the two. Olive was convinced that their father favored Velma. Naturally, she was just as convinced that their mother favored Olive. Velma disliked her mother's submissive attitude towards their father. 
She felt mothers were supposed to love and stand up for their children, but felt her mother never stood up for her or any of her siblings. Every time Velma got a beating from her dad, she was at least as upset with her passive mother who saw and did nothing as she was with her aggressive dad who actually inflicted it. Lily believed she had to step carefully in her own household to deal with her husband's temper. She herself was frequently in danger of being on the receiving end of Murphy's fists because he was a hysterically jealous man. He was also unfaithful, which inevitably added to family tensions. A seven-year-old Velma started school in the fall of 1939. At first, she loved it. A smart girl, she got good grades and teachers' compliments. School also offered relief from her crowded home life, her father's strap, and her often ill mother's gripes and demands. However, Velma soon began having difficulty with her schoolmates. She did not wear the new store-bought pretty dresses that so many other girls did. Her shoes were sturdy and worn. Other children sometimes made fun of her garments and of the plain lunches of cornbread with a side of meat that she brought. Velma began sneaking out of sight of the other kids to eat. Then she began pilfering coins from her father's pants pockets to buy candies from a little store that was across the street from the school. Velma stole $80 from an elderly neighbor. Murphy laid that beating on long and hard, apparently curing Velma of the desire to steal again, at least during her childhood since there are no other reports of thievery during her adolescent years. As Velma grew, she was assigned more and more chores. She had to help out on the farm and care for her younger brothers and sisters. She resented the amount of work she had to do, but did not openly rebel for fear of angering her stern dad. Quote, I really never felt like my mama or daddy ever wanted me except for the work I did. End quote. Velma later stated, quote, I also felt that they just really wanted me to be a slave. End quote. Not everything was bad in her life, though. Her father could be loving with his kids and lead them in ventures that were lots of fun. Murphy often organized baseball games with his children and others. Velma was often the only girl in the game and enjoyed playing shortstop. She also liked swimming when her dad took the kids to the local pond. Despite his hard discipline, Velma was often happy to be a daddy's girl. A 10-year-old Velma was walking through the business district of Fayetteville with her father. She admired a dress in a department store window. It was covered with pink flowers and had a wide ruffle at the hem. She told her dad how much she loved that dress, and to her, very pleasant surprise, he marched straight in and bought it for her. Sadly, later in her life, Velma may have become a daddy's girl in the most negative possible way. She told a reporter from the Village Voice that her father had entered her bedroom and raped her. Prior to that, there had been confusing episodes when he felt her up and she was not sure if it was sexual or not. Several of Velma's brothers and sisters furiously disputed her claim that she was an incest victim. While her family had many of the traits of incestuous families, such as severe power imbalance between husband and wife and a father who drank heavily, it is not possible to say with certainty if her accusations were true or false. Velma certainly could lie and was a champion manipulator throughout much of her life. A claim of sexual abuse can be an easy way to play upon people's sympathies. In 1945, Murphy decided he was tired of working in the mill and wanted to go back to full-time farming. 
He bought more acres and, with that purchase, a small but far more modern home for his family. After only a year, he realized he could not support his large family on what he could make from his crops. He returned to supplementing farm income with work in a mill. Later, he got a job at a textile plant in the town of Red Springs and moved his family there. The house they moved into lacked the modern conveniences of the one they had lived in for the past couple of years. Velma was now in high school. She no longer got the good grades she had achieved in elementary school. However, she found one activity that she enjoyed at Parkton Public School, and that, surprisingly, was basketball. Although it was not standard in that era, Parkton had a girls' team, and Velma found the fast-moving sport a good way to work off energy. Then, her mother insisted that Velma quit the team. Lily had recently given birth to twins and needed her eldest daughter's help with housework more than she ever had. Velma was disappointed and saddened by her mom's demand. Meanwhile, Velma and a high school boy named Thomas Burke had developed a mutual crush. Thomas was a year older than Velma. The two found each other regularly at school to make friends and flirt. Unfortunately, no dating would be allowed until Velma was 16, her father told her when she expressed a wish to begin seeing Thomas outside of school. Then her 16th birthday rolled around, but her father seemed to have changed his mind. He still did not want his daughter going out. After much pleading, Velma got Murphy to agree to her dating. He placed firm restrictions on her, saying she usually had to double date and always had to be home by 10 p.m. on the dot. Although she didn't agree with these restrictions, Velma went along with them. She did not have much choice if she was to avoid her father's wrath and continue seeing Thomas. When she was 17, Thomas proposed to Velma, and she accepted. She had a big argument with her father, which ended with Murphy in tears. Velma had never seen her father cry before, but she still wanted to be with Thomas. Both Thomas and Velma quit school shortly after marrying in 1949. The newlywed Burks were residing in a small Parkton home where Velma's family had once lived when the young wife got pregnant in 1951. On December 15th of that year, she gave birth to Ronald Burke, a.k.a. Ronnie, and his sister Kim Burke, who was born on September 3rd, 1953. This means she was 19 married and had two children under the age of two. She wanted both children to grow up to be devout Christians and regularly took them to a Baptist church. When her children started school, Velma quickly became known as one of the most involved mothers. She was always available for class field trips, volunteering, etc. She and her children joked that she had automatic arms because whenever a teacher asked the class if someone's mother would be willing to assist with a project, their arms instantly shot into the air. Velma could always be counted on. She often drove other parents' children on field trips, and the kids would fight to ride with Velma because she was so much fun. Velma got another job because the family needed some extra cash. She took the midnight to 8 a.m. shift at a textile plant. Thomas began a job as a delivery driver for Pepsi-Cola. The family now had enough funds to move into a more comfortable house in small Parkton, North Carolina. In 2019, the population was about 443. So with that knowledge... It was so small. It was very small. <laughs> the Burks enjoyed several good years. In 1963, Velma began having medical problems and had to undergo a hysterectomy. They were not as distraught as some couples might have been because both Velma and Thomas agreed that the two children were all they wanted. However, the surgery appeared to have a drastic and negative effect on Velma. 
She was alternately nervous and depressed and often impatient. She began worrying that the fact that she could no longer get pregnant made her seem less womanly and therefore less attractive to her husband. She started to have more physical problems and was especially troubled by lower back pain. Thomas Burke decided to join the Jaycees. The United States Junior Chamber, also known as the Jaycees, Jaycees or JCI USA. This is a leadership training and civic organization for people between the ages of 18 and 40. So established as the United States Junior Chamber of Commerce on January 21st, 1920, it provided opportunities for young men to develop personal and leadership skills through service to others. Murphy went off to their weekly meetings while Velma sat at home with the kids. She began to resent his evening absences. Even more, she resented his drinking. Velma was a firm abstainer from alcohol who agreed with her church that alcoholic beverages were the devil's drinks. Thus, she was upset when she found out that Thomas was regularly going out with his male friends for a few beers. In 1965, Thomas had an accident as he was driving his three-year-old Ford Galaxy. The car left the highway, hit a culvert, sailed into the air, and landed on its wheels in the driveway of a house. Thomas's head banged the steering wheel and he was knocked unconscious. He had a concussion and would suffer severe headaches after this incident. He always maintained that he had not been drinking, but had only been tired and had fallen asleep at the wheel. His wife would not buy it. She was certain he had been drunk, and so this heightened her nagging on the subject. Thomas resented her noisy attempts to talk him into abstaining from booze. He drank no more than most of the guys he hung around with. Their battles over booze became an almost daily affair. Usually, Velma started them, upset because Thomas had liquor on his breath. A shouting, name-calling match would follow and the children were inevitably fighting and disturbed by their argumentative parents. Ronnie was especially concerned because he feared his dad would eventually settle the disputes the way so many other men did, with his fist. To his credit, however, Thomas never employed brute strength in his many and furious arguments with his wife. Thomas was arrested for driving under the influence of alcohol in 1967. As a result, he lost his driver's license and, with it, his job at Pepsi-Cola. He was devastated. The shame and despair plunged him into a depression and he drank more than ever to dull the pain that was caused by the drinking. The Burke kids no longer invited friends over to their home because they did not want other kids to hear their parents fight or see their dad wiped out from booze. Later, a male hired Thomas and he was able to ride to work in a carpool. The household tension was taking a great toll on Velma. She was even more worried and frantic and had been drastically losing weight. One day, Ronnie came home to find his mother lying on the kitchen floor in a dead faint. He was able to help her back to consciousness, but insisted on a trip to the hospital. Doctors recommended she remain hospitalized for a week. She was given vitamins and sedatives before being released with a prescription for a mild tranquilizer, Librium. When she got home, she eventually began taking more Librium than was prescribed. She also went to another physician and got a prescription for Valium. Velma had begun doctor shopping and continued down this path for the remainder of her free life. It was a pattern of going to doctors and getting prescriptions without telling one doctor that she was seeing another. Thus, she took medicines that were not supposed to be taken in conjunction with each other. 
Even as she constantly and loudly fretted about her husband's alcohol use, Thomas and her teenage kids worried about her use of prescription medications. She was taking too much, sometimes leaving her as groggy as a drunkard. One day in April 1969, the Burke house caught on fire. The only person home was Thomas Burke. Both youngsters were at school. Velma said she had been at the laundromat when she came home to see the house in flames. Thomas died of smoke inhalation. At the hospital, Velma collapsed when she was told of her husband's death. A few months after this loss, Velma experienced great joy and triumph through the achievements of her son. Ronnie was graduating from high school as salutatorian. His mother sat proudly among the spectators as he spoke at the commencement. He chose the subject nearest to him in his heart, his mother. In his speech, he paid tribute to her as the reason for all the good qualities he possessed. Velma cried as she listened to his public praise. However, the Burke family continued to have bad luck. There was another fire at their home. This time, no one was inside and no one was hurt, but the house was gutted. While they waited for the insurance to pay for the damage, the Burks moved back in with Velma's parents. Soon after Thomas's death, Velma began dating a widower named Jennings Barfield. Jennings was a man who had taken early retirement due to numerous health problems. He suffered from diabetes, emphysema, and heart disease. He had lost his wife close to the time Velma had lost her husband, and the two were probably initially brought together by a mutual desire to comfort each other in grief. Then a romance grew and deepened, and wedding bells were in the air. They were married on August 23rd, 1970. Wow, that's a really quick time. You said it was soon after. You weren't kidding. That's like no a year way. and a half. Yeah. Wow. So it was a church wedding, something Velma felt she had missed out on her youthful elopement to Thomas. And Velma moved into the small home in Fayetteville that her groom shared with his teenage daughter, Nancy. The newlyweds were soon having troubles, partly because of Velma's tendency of overdoing it with prescription medications. Jennings found his wife in a semi-conscious state and took her to the hospital. The doctor on duty said she had overdosed. They separated, then reconciled when she promised to quit taking so many pills. She broke her word, went back to the emergency room with another overdose. Both Velma and Jennings confided to others that they believed the marriage had been a mistake. Divorce seemed inevitable, but it never actually came to that. Jennings died on March 21, 1971, apparently of the heart failure that had troubled him for years. Okay, so let me get this straight. She marries somebody very young, has two kids, gets through some medical issues, develops a drug prescription problem. Her husband, her first husband, dies in a house fire. In like less than a year and a half, she's remarried. And within six months of that, he's dead. Homeboy is gone. Holy moly. This <laughs> but girl this is lives just the like, start. This is like a reality TV show. Okay. <laughs> right. We're not even close. <laughs> we're not even close. Oh, man. Okay. I j okay. Just wanted to make sure we were all on the same page here. Yes. All right. So, okay, let's look at what happened after that. So she's widowed again. Um, Velma did not appear to be coping well. She was often over-medicating herself into oblivion and spending much of her time in bed. After Jennings' death, she felt emptier and more depressed than ever. She kept going to many doctors and had prescriptions from at least two and usually three doctors at any given time. No matter how many pills any one doctor prescribed, they never lasted until the next refill. 
She worked at Belk's department store, but her performance was being badly affected by her mood swings and evidence of drug dependency, if you can even imagine. Wow, what a shocker. (laughs) (laughs) Her boss was a sympathetic man, so instead of firing her, he put her in the stock room where she could not alienate customers with a snippy or abrasive manner. Adding to Velma's despair was a separation from her son. The Vietnam War was raging, and Ronnie felt it was only a matter of time before he was going to be drafted, so he decided just to sign up on his own. He had second thoughts after Jennings died and his mother begged him to attempt to persuade the military that he needed to be allowed to stay with his sick mom. He made a sincere effort in that direction. Doctors wrote to the army telling of Velma's precarious health and asking that Ronnie be permitted to honorably opt out of this contract, but it didn't work. And he was ordered to report to Fort Jackson in South Carolina. When it seemed like things could not get worse, they did. Velma's house once again caught fire. Velma went into hysterics. She was simply inconsolable. She and her daughter once again moved back in with Murphy and Lily. It was just in time for Velma to be fired from Belks. (laughs) She had been coming in late and unable to perform her duties when she was there. Unemployment led Velma's chronic depression to deepen. It got even blacker when she learned that Murphy had lung cancer. His death at 61 plunged her into a horrific grief. Life hardly seemed worth living. Her father was dead and her son could be sent to Vietnam and be killed. It seemed that she would lose Ronnie even if he did not die because he told her he was planning to marry. She did not give her son and his prospective bride her blessing. Instead, she was crushed. She told her son, quote, I've always been the most important woman in your life and now you're going to have her and you won't even want me to come around at all. End quote. Ronnie tried to reassure her that his love for his future wife did not take away from his love for his mother. His reassurance did nothing to ease her jealousy of the young woman who was there to share his life. But his mother's jealousy did not dissuade Ronnie from going ahead with the plans for his wedding. In March 1972, Velma Barfield was arrested for forging a prescription. She pled guilty in April and got off with a suspended sentence and fine. Then, finally, she got some genuinely welcome news. Ronnie was discharged from the army. Despite the bright spot of Ronnie's return, Valma was still having a great deal of trouble. After her father's death, she and her mother fell into a pattern of frequent arguing. Velma claimed that Lily was constantly ordering her about, the older woman expecting to be waited on hand and foot, and the grown-up Velma was not going to be treated like a slave anymore. Lily, for her part was dismayed by Velma's frequent use of pills and her tendencies to sometimes simply pass out from taking too many. Lily got dreadfully sick during the summer of 1974. She began throwing up uncontrollably and suffering a violent diarrhea. It got so bad that Velma drove her mother to the hospital. The doctors could not determine the cause of the sudden illness. However, Lily was better after a few days and went home. On August 23, 1974, A man Velma had been dating was killed in a traffic accident. Velma was not present during this accident. He made Velma the beneficiary of his life insurance policy and she received a check for $5,000. That Christmas approached and both Lily and Velma enjoyed bustling around in the kitchen, making a big dinner and desserts for their big extended family. Everybody at Grandma Bullard's house kitted around them and laughed and then opened some presents. However, 
Lily pulled one of her sons aside to talk to him about something odd that troubled her. She had gotten a letter from a finance company telling her that a loan was overdue on her car and it would be repossessed if she failed to promptly pay it. Lily had not taken out any loan on a car and she owned it free and clear. Her son saw no problem. It was probably just one of those paperwork snaffles. Nothing to fret about. A couple of days later, Lily got terribly sick. She was nauseous, then vomiting. That was followed by an awful attack of diarrhea. Her insides felt like they were burning up. She told Velma she had hideous pains in her belly and upper back. Her arms and legs flailed about her. She threw up again and threw up blood. Velma phoned her brother Olive, who immediately drove over. He was appalled to see her mother so sick and called an ambulance. The rescue squad allowed Velma to ride in the ambulance with her mother. Lily died two hours after arriving at the hospital. Early in 1975, Velma was once again in hot water with the law. She had written another string of bad checks. She was convicted on several counts of writing bad checks. The judge sent her to prison for six months. She was released after serving only three. A while after obtaining her freedom, Velma started to look for jobs as a caregiver for elderly sick people. In 1976, she was living with and working for Montgomery and Dolly Edwards. Montgomery was 94, bedridden, and uncontrolled. He was a diabetic and had lost his vision to that disease as well as both legs and had been amputated. He could not feed himself. 84-year-old Dolly was in somewhat better shape, but she was a cancer survivor who had had a colostomy bag. At first, Velma seemed pleased to be able to move in to their comfortable brick ranch house. She got along well with both of them and found a church she liked attending, the First Pentecostal Church in Lumberton. As time wore on, tensions surfaced between the caregiver and her employers. Dolly often thought Velma was falling down on the job and told her so in no uncertain terms. Velma complained that Dolly was a demanding nitpicker. Their quarrels got more frequent and more heated. Montgomery died in January of 1977. Velma stayed to care for Dolly, but the two continued to bicker. It was February 26, 1977, when Dolly got sick. She told her visiting stepson, Preston Edwards, that... She believed she must have had the flu. Vomiting and diarrhea plagued her. He came to see her the next night and was horrified by how weak and pale she was. She had to go to the hospital. An obliging Velma called an ambulance. Dolly was treated by doctors in the emergency room and sent back home without having spent the night there. She took a turn for the worse the next day and was back in the hospital within two days. She died on the evening of February 28, 1977. Now, Velma had no livelihood, but that did not last long. She was soon caring for another ailing and elderly couple, 80-year-old farmer John Henry Lee and his 76-year-old wife, Record. Record was the one needing special assistance, for she had recently broken her leg and was hobbling around on crutches when she could manage to get around. The position seemed quite suitable to Velma. The Lees lived in a brick house in a rural area on the outskirts of Lumberton. They were willing to let Velma have Sunday and Wednesday evenings off so she could attend church services. Of course, problems started surfacing. Record loved to gab, and the incessant chit-chat got on Velma's nerves. Record and her husband often argued, and Velma disliked being present during their fights. Then, there was a written check that puzzled Record. She knew she had not signed it. 
John Henry called the cops, but the case stalled because no one could think of anyone who might have forged Record's name. On April 27th, John Henry got sick. His stomach was upset, and he developed diarrhea. Does this sound familiar? I would would say there's a pattern developing. (laughs) His condition worsened, and Velma called an ambulance. The medics rushed him to the hospital. He gradually recovered and was released on May 2nd, after he had spent four days there. Doctors were mystified about the source of the sickness, but thought it was probably a virus. Throughout May, John Henry continued to be sick. For a few days, he would be perfectly okay. Then, the vomiting, the diarrhea, the cramps, the cold sweats would start again. His weight continued to drop drastically. His daughters were very grateful for the attentiveness that Velma showed him. She was so sweet to him, so caring. They felt lucky that she was there. He took a turn for the worst, and Velma called another ambulance for him. There was little the hospital could do for the dehydration this terrible sick man had endured. He died on June 4, 1977. Sometime after the funeral of John Henry, Velma moved into the home of Stuart Taylor, who was a relative of Dolly Edwards. Stuart, a 56-year-old farmer, and Velma began seeing each other. Stuart was aware that there were contradictory aspects of Velma's personality. She was living out of wedlock with him, a move that had shocked her children. She also had a criminal record of forgery, a fact that Stuart had discovered by accident and led him to actually decide not to legally marry her. They were on their way to a revival meeting of the famous preacher Rex Humbert. The service had just begun when a wave of nausea rolled over Stuart. Fierce pains gripped his stomach. He went to the truck to lie down. Still miserable with nausea when the meeting was finished, Velma got into the car with him. Stuart lay back and was in agony as she drove them home. At one point, they even had to pull over to the side of the road. A pale and sweaty Stuart stumbled out of the vehicle and vomited in the dirt. At home, he was in too much pain to sleep. In the wee hours of the morning, Velma phoned his pregnant daughter, Alice Storms, to tell her that her father's disturbing condition had worsened. Later, Alice phoned and asked Velma about Stuart's illness. They both Concurred, it was probably just the flu. Later, Velma visited one of Stuart's best friends, Sonny Johnson, to advise that Stuart was sick and wanted to see him. Stuart asked Sonny to take care of the pigs for him until he was over the flu, and Sonny assured him that he would. Stuart's condition got worse. His chest, stomach, and arms were all racked with pain, and he vomited incessantly. He felt like he was on fire from the inside out. The next day, Velma drove Stuart to the hospital. While the doctors examined and tried to treat the man, she discussed what she knew of his medical history. She was not well informed about it, but she did know that he was a heavy drinker. After answering the physician's questions, Velma called Alice. She, in turn, phoned her brother Billy, who went to the hospital. Together with Velma, Billy heard a doctor say his father's dreadful condition was gastritis. The doctor prescribed medicine and told Velma she could take Stuart home that night, which she did. Sonny again visited his friend, and Stuart had finally improved. He still looked sickly, but was sitting up in bed, chatting and smoking. Stuart insisted Sonny stand at the doorway because he didn't want to transmit his flu. The next evening, around 8 p.m., Stuart had taken a drastic turn for the worst. Velma phoned John McPherson, a neighbor and friend. Stuart needed an ambulance, so McPherson called for one and drove to the house himself. He found Stuart looking terrible. 
The room had a nauseating odor because Stuart had suffered an attack of diarrhea in his bed. The arms and legs of the sweaty and chalk-faced man thrashed around and he made incoherent moaning noises. From time to time, he even screamed. Velma had surrounded the bed with chairs, their backs to the bed, to prevent him from falling out of it. The EMTs worked quickly and efficiently to bundle him up into an ambulance and raced him to the hospital. Velma followed in Stuart's truck. Doctors rushed to his side, but Stuart died an hour after arriving at the hospital. In the waiting room were Velma and Stuart's children, Alice and Billy. The doctor said he was puzzled by the man's sudden death and suggested an autopsy. Both Alice and Billy asked Velma what she thought. Quote, if you don't do it, she said, you'll always wonder. End quote. Stuart's children told the physician to perform the autopsy. Velma and her son Ronnie sat with Stuart's grieving family at his funeral. Velma placed a comforting arm around Alice. As Ronnie left the service, he looked at another person there and observed, quote, You know, it's the saddest thing, but it seems like everybody my mother ever gets close to dies. How could the good Lord allow this to happen to a faithful Christian like Velma Barfield? End quote. Earlier that same day, a phone call had awakened Lumberton Police Detective Benson Phillips. The caller was weeping and babbling. The detective could not easily make out her slurred, shrill words. He was able to gather from some of the sounds. Quote, murder. I know who did it. You've got to stop her. You've got to stop her. End quote. Phillips had heard of no murder in the small town of Lumberton, and he would have if one had been committed since he investigated all homicides, so he thought it was a prank call. However, he suggested she call him at the station. When he got there, he found, as he expected, no homicide reports. Finally, the female caller phoned again. This time, she was calmer and more coherent. She still didn't want to give details, but Phillips gradually coaxed them from her. She revealed that she was calling from South Carolina, but she couldn't give her name. She didn't want anyone to know that she had called. The man who had been murdered, she said, quote, was the boyfriend of Velma Barfield, who had killed him just as she had killed her own mother, end quote. The caller admitted that she could offer no proof, but she was sure that Velma's boyfriend and mother were not the only ones. She said, quote, too many people close to Velma have died, end quote. She stated, including two elderly people Velma had worked for, but she didn't know their names. When Phillips pressed for evidence, she could offer none. How did she know about all this, Philip asked. She said, quote, because Velma is my sister, end quote. Phillips was utterly baffled by this strange caller. He did not trust her, but then again, he could not quite dismiss her out of, out of hand. He had to do some checking to make sure. He called the Lumberton Hospital and inquired if anyone had died over the weekend. He was told about Stuart Taylor's passing. They advised it seemed to be a death by natural causes, and regional medical examiner Dr. Bob Andrews had performed an autopsy but did not yet have all the results back. So Phillips was intrigued and disturbed, but also in an awkward position. He had discovered that Stewart had been brought to the hospital from the countryside near St. Paul's. That would put an investigation under the jurisdiction of the sheriff. He had no responsibility. Still, he made a note to call his old friend Wilbur Lovett at the sheriff's department the following day to tell him about it. 
In the meantime, Dr. Andrews was puzzled over the results of his autopsy. Stewart had seemingly died of gastroenteritis. It was odd for a man as healthy as Stewart to be killed by that alone, and Dr. Andrews was determined to look further. During the course of the autopsy, toxology screenings were performed on samples of Stewart's liver and blood. Though the normal human body contains no arsenic in the blood or in liver tissue, Stewart's blood was found to have an arsenic level of 0.13 milligrams percent. His liver had an arsenic level of 1 milligram percent. These findings led Dr. Andrews to conclude that Taylor died from acute arsenic poisoning. Now, just to keep in mind, um, I do not know what that percentage means or the verbiage of that, but I do know that it was supposed to be zero. So the fact that there is numbers in there reflected as to why they decided to conclude that he was poisoned. Yeah, I mean, we're not doctors in here, but <laughs> no, we are addicts, so yeah, it's okay. <laughs> Maybe we need a doctor. Maybe so. <laughs> Soon, authorities took a second look at the death certificates of the several people close to Velma who had died. Even when an autopsy had been performed, no special test had been done for poison. Rather, with stunning regularity, those she knew expired of gastroenteritis. The investigators were pretty certain they were dealing not only with a murderer, but a serial murderer. The police always do best if they can get a confession, and what would be the best way to obtain one from Velma? They decided to surprise her with a plan to discuss bad checks, then throw in Stewart's death. Officer Phillips picked her up for questioning on March 10, 1978. Sheriff Lovett and homicide investigator Al Parnell were present as well. During the conversation, the deputies discussed a number of checks that had been forged on the account of Stuart Taylor. During the interview, the officers produced a check dated January 31, 1978, in the amount of $300. Velma stated that she had seen the check before, that she had cashed the check, and that she had even filled out the check, but that it was signed by Stuart himself. While she talked to the officers, Velma produced two more checks from her pocketbook, which were dated November 4th, 1977, and around November 23rd, 1977. Both checks were drawn on Stewart's checking account and were payable to her. They were in the amounts of $100 and $95. When confronted about Stewart's death, they advised her that they knew he died of poisoning. She claimed to know nothing about it and said that they were in love, had plans to get married, and mentioned that she wouldn't benefit from his death and that she had even been the one to take him to the hospital and was nursing him while he was ill. The following day on March 11, 1978, Velma's son, Ronnie, was visiting his in-laws when his mother called and asked to speak to her son. Ronnie was a 26-year-old man with multiple responsibilities. He had a wife and a three-year-old son. He worked full-time and went to college full-time at Pembroke State University where he sought a business administration degree. He would receive it in just a couple of months. Ronnie was often pressed for time and sleep, but he wanted to become the first member of his family to earn a four-year college degree, partly because he knew how much that would please his mother. For quite a while, Ronnie had been concerned for his mother. She had suffered far more than her share of grief through the deaths of so many people she cared about. He also knew that she was taking more drugs than the doctors had prescribed for her. 
His mother sounded agitated as she advised Ronnie that the police had taken her to the station. He thought she was back to writing bad checks to cover drug bills. Then a shock went through him as she advised that they wanted to talk about Stuart. They said he was poisoned and seemed to think she had something to do with it. Ronnie thought the cops were completely off course because Stuart had died five weeks prior and his mom had been devastated. He suggested his mother go to his home. Ronnie, his wife, and toddler lived in a modest duplex on the outskirts of Lumberton, North Carolina. When Velma arrived there, Ronnie comforted her. He did not believe she would need a lawyer. Attorneys are terribly expensive after all, and he and his mother were people of very limited means. He figured the police would realize she was not a part of this and things would settle down soon enough. After that weekend, Ronnie was at work when a woman called him. She would not say who she was, but told him, I'm a friend of your mother's. I've heard she's going to be arrested today. She said, I thought you ought to know. Ronnie responded with, are you sure? Yes, she said. They're going to charge her with Stuart's death. I know someone who works in the sheriff's station. Ronnie told his supervisor he had to leave to attend a family emergency. He drove to the Lumberton Police Department and talked to Sheriff Wilbur Lovett. Ronnie learned that they were not planning to arrest her that day, but they did consider her a suspect. He could not disclose why, though, so Ronnie left the sheriff's office even more outraged and upset than he had when he walked in. From there, he drove to the home in which his mother was living. Velma resided with Mammy Warwick, a senior citizen who allowed Velma to live rent-free in exchange for her doing some household chores. Ronnie found his mom taking a nap and told her that the cops still suspected her in Stuart's death. Velma said she could not possibly do anything like that. Then she started to sob. Finally, she stopped crying and told her son something he had never expected to hear. Quote, I only meant to make him sick, end quote. So it had been an accident, but his mother had caused it. She would have to go to the police and explain. Velma wept quietly as she sat in the passenger seat of her son's car, being driven to the sheriff's department. Ronnie could not be present while she was being questioned. She said she did not want a lawyer. Ronnie called his sister to break the sad news to her. They agreed to meet at her home. Velma's sisters, Arlene and Faye, would eventually drive to join their niece and nephew as well. Eventually, the phone rang and Ronnie spoke to investigator Al Parnell. This is when Ronnie learned there were others that Velma had killed. Parnell advised Ronnie that Velma had confessed to killing two people to whom she had been a paid live-in caregiver and her own mother, Ronnie's grandmother. When Ronnie repeated what he had been told to his sister and aunts, a pandemonium of tears and screaming broke out in the little house. Ronnie recalled the loving mother who had fed and clothed him, bandaged his cuts and wiped his runny nose, been an attentive mother for him and his sister, taken him to church and taught him right from wrong, disciplined him and encouraged him always to do his very best. That image was impossible to reconcile with the poisoner of four people. Sheriff Lovett advised Velma that there was a possibility that a number of bodies would be exhumed. He asked her if arsenic would be found in the bodies. When she answered affirmatively, Sheriff Lovett asked her in which bodies arsenic would be found. In Velma's statement, she admitted that before January 1st, 1978, 
She had forged some checks on Stewart's account, which he found out about when his bank statements came in the mail, and that upon finding out about the forgeries, Stewart talked with Velma and threatened to turn her into the authorities. She forged another check on Stewart's account on January 31st, 1978, and this forgery bothered her because Stewart would find out about it. On that day, she and Stewart went to Lumberton because she had an appointment with her doctor, and after they left the doctor's office, they stopped at a drugstore seemingly for her to purchase some hairspray, but instead she purchased a bottle of tarot ant poisoning. The next day, February 1st, 1978, she put some of the poison in Stuart's tea at lunchtime, and that later that same day, she put more of the substance in Stuart's beer. Velma told the officers that she felt sure that what she had done was wrong, but that she had not told anyone at the hospital about it on the two occasions that Stuart had been taken there for treatment. She stated that she gave Stuart the poison because she was afraid that he would turn her in for forgery. She further stated that she used the money she got out of the January 31st check to pay bills for doctors and medicine. At the trial, the state introduced evidence obtained through handwriting analysis, which tended to show that the three checks were not written by Stuart Taylor, and that the checks had been cashed by Velma at a branch at First Union National Bank in Lumberton. During the interview with the deputies, Velma denied that she had forged any checks on Stuart's account. Velma admitted that while she lived and worked in Lee's home as a housekeeper and nurse aide, she found a checkbook for a joint account. She wrote a check on the account in the amount of $50, and Mr. and Mrs. Lee found out about the forgery and asked her about it. Velma then admitted she purchased a bottle of poison, pausing to read the label, which said, may be fatal if swallowed, and that she gave Mr. Lee poison three times once in his tea and twice in his coffee. Though no autopsy was performed at the time of Mr. Lee's death, his body was exhumed pursuant to a court order on March 18, 1978, and taken to the office of the chief medical examiner in Chapel Hill, where an autopsy was performed. Toxicology screenings revealed that the liver contained an arsenic level of 2.8 mg percent, and the muscle tissue contained an arsenic level of 0.3 mg percent. Dr. Paige Hudson, chief medical examiner of the state of North Carolina, testified that in his opinion, Mr. Lee's death was caused by arsenic poisoning. In Velma's confession, she admitted to officers that she had poisoned Miss Dolly Edwards while working as a live-in helper. She admitted that she purchased a bottle of poison and she noticed on the bottle the words, could be fatal if swallowed. She put some of the poison in Dolly's coffee and cereal. Velma said that she knew that the poison was responsible for the death of Dolly and that after she died, she threw the bottle of poison into a field behind the Edwards residence and that she did not know why she gave the poison to Dolly. In the trial, Sheriff Lovett testified that during the course of his investigation, he went to the field behind the Edwards home and found an empty bottle of Singletary's rat poison, which still bore the original label. The attending physician, Dr. Henry Neal Lee Jr., testified that Dolly had dehydrated and suffered from nausea, diarrhea, and vomiting. Though no autopsy was performed on the body of Dolly at the time of her death, pursuant to a court order, her body was exhumed on March 18, 1978, and sent to the office of the chief medical examiner in Chapel Hill, where an autopsy was performed. During the autopsy, 
Toxicology screenings were conducted on samples of Dolly's liver and muscle tissue. In the liver tissue, there was found an arsenic level of 0.4 milligrams percent. In the muscle tissue, there was found an arsenic level of 0.8 milligrams percent. Medical examiner Dr. Page testified that, in his opinion, Dolly's death was caused by arsenic poisoning. Again, in Velma's confession, she further admitted in her statement to the deputies that while she lived with her mother, Lily, she forged her mother's name on a note in favor of the commercial credit company of Lumberton. The note was in the amount of $1,048. She further told the deputies that she was afraid that her mother would find out about the note, so she bought a bottle of poison, and the bottle bore the warning, can be fatal if swallowed. One day at dinner time, she put some of the poison in some soup and a soft drink and gave both to her mother, and later that evening, she gave her mother a soft drink which contained a dose of the poison again. In the trial, the attending physician, Dr. Weldon Jordan, testified that Lily was restless and grasping for breath when she was brought into the hospital. She was in shock and that he was unable to discern any blood pressure. Upon the death of Lily, an autopsy was performed with the permission of her family, including Velma. No toxicology screenings were conducted at that time. Pursuant to a court order, the body of Lily Bullard was exhumed on March 18, 1978 and taken to the office of the chief medical examiner in Chapel Hill. Dr. William Frank Hamilton testified that he performed toxicology screenings upon samples of hair, muscle tissue, and skin, which had been taken from the body. The hair sample revealed an arsenic concentration of 0.6 milligrams percent. The muscle tissue had an arsenic level of 0.3 milligrams percent. The skin sample had an arsenic level of 0.1 milligrams percent. And that in his opinion, Lily's death was caused by arsenic poisoning. Although Velma did not admit any involvement in the death of her husband, Jennings Barfield, his body was exhumed pursuant to a court order on May 31, 1978. It was taken to the office of the chief medical examiner in Chapel Hill, where an autopsy was performed. Toxicology screenings indicated that varying levels of arsenic were present in his body tissue. Dr. Neil A. Warden testified that he treated Jennings when he was brought into the emergency room in Fayetteville on March 22, 1971. Dr. Hamilton testified that the cause of Jennings' death was arsenic poisoning. Velma was on trial for one count of first-degree murder. This was for Stewart. Her defense was that she did not mean to kill, only to render her victim ill while she attempted to cover up thefts by returning money she had pilfered from him. If true, she was guilty only of second-degree murder, and the death sentence would not even be an issue. Because the question of intent was so crucial, the prosecutor argued that the jury was entitled to hear of other poisonings she had committed and their results. The defense attorney argued that that would be prejudicial since she was only being tried for the death of Stewart. The judge in the case ruled that the evidence liking Velma to the deaths of John Henry, Dottie, and her own mother, Lily, be admissible. First, the prosecutor put both medical personnel and family on the stand who testified to the horror of Stewart's death. He also brought out the fact that his life could have been saved had the anecdote for arsenic poisoning, British Anti-Lewisite, or BAL, had been administered. However, to do that, the doctors would have had to have been informed that Stewart had been poisoned with arsenic, 
and the one person who knew that, Velma, did not tell them. Defense attorney asked doctors about the effects of the various drugs Velma had been taking and their possible interactions with each other. Some of the physicians who testified about treating Stuart had also treated Velma and prescribed medications for her. Their testimony showed that she was on drugs that could have badly impaired her judgment and were very addictive. Evidence was presented which showed that during the month of January 1978, Velma was under the care of five doctors, none of whom knew she was under the care of the other. She had been seeing the doctors for some time and had obtained prescriptions for a number of drugs from them. Among the drugs she was taking at the time were Elevil, Senequin, Trangzine, Tylenol-3, and Valium. She had a history of drug abuse and had been admitted to the hospital at least four times for overdoses. The defense put Velma on the stand in her own defense. He knew he was taking an enormous risk in doing so, but felt he had to let her explain her own confused thinking to the jury. She did well in direct examination, saying that she had given her boyfriend poison to make him sick, but not to kill him. She said she did not tell doctors what she had done because she feared being returned to prison. She also brought out her extensive use of various medications, her combining a wide variety of drugs, and her dependency on them. She admitted forging checks because she was addicted to drugs and could not pay for them out of her own limited resources. In the opinion of the prosecutor, Velma was a cold-blooded and cunning murderer who hid behind a sweet little old devoted Christian lady's mask. When cross-examined, she matched the persona of the prosecutor. At one point, she seemed to be trying to argue that she had not killed her victims. Rather, people coincidentally happened to die after she poisoned them. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that sounds so silly. That does. After all, the first autopsies did all indicate natural deaths. So, therefore, she must not have killed them. <laughs> wow. Okay, I have a direct quote from what Velma said in court and also a conversation between her and the prosecutor in cross-examination. So, first she said, quote, What I would like, Your Honor, is to say to the jury and all, these autopsies, let me say, first of all, when a person dies and they ask for an autopsy to be performed, is it not true that we have an autopsy performed to find out the reason of the death? So I don't believe it killed them really. That is exactly the way I feel about it, end quote. In response to that, the prosecutor asked, quote, beg your pardon? She repeated, quote, I don't think it killed them. At another point, Velma seemed oddly arrogant and snippy. Quote, you made Mrs. Edwards sick with Singletary's rat poison, did you not? The prosecutor asked. Quote, no, I thought it was roach and ant poison. She responded. He said, quote, so you knew these compounds would certainly make people sick. Her response was, I knew it would make them sick. The prosecutor asked, you knew it would kill them too, didn't you? She answered with, quote, no, I did not. So that kind of paints a picture of what was going on in trial at that time. And she did really well in direct examination. She answered all of the questions and, and gave this very good persona. Then when cross-examined, she was trying to match that of the prosecutor. And that's actually what exactly what he wanted. He wanted to show her crazy side. Mm -hmm. 
Right after the prosecutor gave his summation to the jury, Velma made a gesture of silent applause, repeatedly putting her hands together without actually clapping. With that single uncalled-for sarcasm, he was certain Velma had as good as signed her own death warrant. The jury came back with a verdict of guilty of first-degree murder. Then, it found the aggravating circumstances to recommend the death penalty. Judge McKinnon fixed her punishment to death. To provide you some insight on the death penalty as it stands today in 2022, in the United States, capital punishment is a legal penalty in 27 states, American Samoa, by the federal government and in the military, and is abolished in 23 states. Capital punishment is, in practice, only applied for aggravated murder. There were no executions in the United States between 1967 and 1977. In 1972, the Supreme Court of the United States struck down capital punishment statutes in Furman v. Georgia, reducing all pending death sentences to life imprisonment at that time. Subsequently, a majority of states enacted a new death penalty statutes, and the court affirmed the legality of the capital punishment in the 1976 case Gregg v. Georgia. Since then, more than 7,800 defendants have been sentenced to death. Of these, more than 1,500 have been executed. As of December 16, 2020, 2,591 people are still on death row. Velma was imprisoned at Central Prison in Raleigh, North Carolina, in an area for escape-prone prisoners and mentally ill prisoners, as there was no designated area for women under death sentences at the time, and she was the state's only female death row inmate. A death row unit for female inmates in North Carolina was subsequently established at the North Carolina Correctional Institution for Women. Early in her prison stay, Velma went through drug withdrawal. She had been supplied with many of her accustomed medications during her trial. Her first days as a condemned prisoner were spent without them, and she showed the classic symptoms of cold turkey, lack of appetite, insomnia, nausea, cold sweats, and splitting headaches. The doctor who treated her gave her antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications. Then gradually, over a period of about a year, she was weaning off of them. To the extent possible, Velma made her cell into a home. She put up photographs of her children and grandchildren, along with knickknacks she crocheted and inspirational religious slogans. Velma did not usually smoke, but she usually had a pack of Salem's so that she could light one up while she was pooping on her cell toilet. (laughs) Velma, whose victims had usually suffered a horrendous diarrhea before death, did not want to offend her guards with the odor of her own poop. Well, that's really nice of her. So kind. (laughs) She makes other people have diarrhea, but she doesn't want people to smell her own. (laughs) So Velma's radio was usually tuned into a Christian program. During her stay on death row, Velma became a devout Christian. Her last few years were spent ministering to prisoners Velma's involvement in Christian ministry was extensive to the point that an effort was made to obtain a commutation to life imprisonment. Her conversion was greeting with skepticism by many, including the families of her victims. After all, she had spoken of Jesus and salvation when they knew her and when she was poisoning their loved ones. Her Christian faith had always been a fraud, they believed, and it continued to be one. It was just a ploy to try to save her life. However, many people were favorably impressed by Velma's claim to be, for the first time in her life, filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Special rules applied to Velma because of the death sentence and included no contact with the other inmates. However, the prison authorities frequently broke this rule because they found that she could be a positive influence on the other prisoners. Assistant Superintendent for Treatment and Programs at the prison, Jenny Lancaster, put a 15-year-old named Beth into the cell next to Velma. Lancaster asked Velma to try to help the girl who had been convicted of an accessory to murder. Velma put her hand through the bars of her own cell and toward the next one so that Beth could hold hands with her. Beth took Velma into her confidence, pouring out her fears, while Velma prayed aloud for her and tried to comfort. For the first time in her life, Velma was known by her first name, and Beth was the first prisoner to call her mama Margie. She would not be the last. Other inmates often came to Velma for advice and words of reassurance. Letter writing for herself and others consumed much of Velma's time. She wrote to her family and to her supporters who she had never even met. She also kept up with her crocheting. Velma prayed and read the Bible on a daily basis. Her son and daughter visited and sometimes brought her grandchildren with them. Together with a pastor, she worked on her memoirs titled Women on Death Row. Both Ronnie and Kim continued to visit. As Velma and Ronnie realized that time was running out, Ronnie brought up the painful subject of his father's death in one of their conversations. He was terrified of the answer, but had to ask the question. Did you kill him? Ronnie asked. She said, quote, I'm sure I probably did, with a sad tone to her voice. Sadly, the story spilled out. Her memory was fuzzy, but she believed that she had been drunk and asleep, and she laid either a cigarette or a match at the foot of the bed, then shut the door. She also admitted to the minister who helped her write women on death row that she had murdered Jennings Barfield. Any death sentence is automatically appealed. In June 1990, the Supreme Court turned down Velma's appeal because it found no unconstitutional element in the way North Carolina's death penalty statutes read. A new attorney was handling Velma's case, Richard Burr. He was a lawyer of the Southern Prisoners Defense Committee and dedicated to aid prisoners under a death sentence. Velma was the first doomed prisoner he would defend. 200 other condemned convicts would follow. A second basis for the appeal was the testimony of Dorothy Otno Lewis, professor of psychiatry at New York University School of Medicine and an authority on violent behavior, who claimed that Velma suffered from disassociative identity disorder. Professor Lewis testified that she had spoken to Velma's other personality, Billy, who told her that Velma had been a victim of sexual abuse and that he, Billy, had killed her abusers. The judge was unconvinced and said, one of them did it, I don't care which one. On September 17th, the Supreme Court turned down another appeal filed by attorney Burr on Velma's behalf. He decided her best shot would be in North Carolina State Court, but he had no license to practice in North Carolina. Thus, Jimmy Little became her attorney of record, with Burr assisting him. Little had once been a public defender. He also had a reputation for being willing to stick his neck out. Little went to the Bladen County Superior Court and filed a motion asking for a hearing to determine whether or not his client was entitled to a new trial. There were several complaints behind this motion, but the chief one was ineffective assistance of counsel. Thus, Velma was pitted against her previous attorney, Bob Jacobson. 
Little argued that Jacobson had failed in his duty to make appropriate motions and to put on helpful psychiatric witness. The judge ruled against Velma and set another execution date. Her lawyers soon got a stay and filed more appeals. Over the course of six years, several appeals were filed and turned down. Several execution dates were set and avoided. Once the appeals had been exhausted, Velma and her supporters had a thin ray of hope in the form of clemency from North Carolina's governor. The governor was James Hunt, who was running against famous incumbent Jesse Helms for the U.S. Senate. The governor refused Velma's request for clemency, stating her victims had been literally tortured to death. Hunt denied that the Senate race had played any part in his decision. As they do at all American executions, demonstrators both for and against capital punishment gathered outside the prison before Velma's death. Opponents held lit candles and hummed Amazing Grace, which was Velma's favorite. A festive mood prevailed among the capital punishment supporters. They held signs saying, Velma's going to have a hell of a time and bye bye Velma and chanted, die bitch, die. Under North Carolina law, she was allowed the choice of execution by lethal gas or lethal injection, and not surprisingly, honestly, she chose lethal injection. She could not face her last meal and asked the guard to get her just a Coca-Cola and cheese doodles instead. <laughs> In her cell, Velma took a final communion. They put on an adult diaper underneath the cotton pajamas in which she had chosen to die. Velma requested and got permission to put a robe on. Then she checked her hair in the mirror and stepped into the hallway. She was taken to a preparation room and asked if she had any last words. She did. Quote, I want to say that I am sorry for all the hurt that I have caused. She began in a firm voice. Quote, I know that everybody has gone through a lot of pain. All the families connected and I'm sorry. And I want to thank everybody who has been supporting me all these six years. I want to thank my family for standing with me through all this and my attorneys and all the support for me. Everybody, the people with the prison department. I appreciate everything, their kindness and everything that they have shown me during these six years. End quote. Then the condemned prisoner was escorted to her gateway to heaven. The gateway was a tiny sterile room with a gurney in it. Velma got up on the gurney, then lay flat down on it. Needles connected to ivy leads were inserted into her arms. She would receive something to make her sleep, then a poison to stop her heart. There were two lines into Velma, but three executioners. This way, no one knew for certain that they had taken her life. So to paint a picture, they all three are holding a contraption that like has a button. And two of them actually do lead to Velma, but between the three of them, they don't know who actually had the lead that connected to her so that nobody knows for certain that they were responsible for her death. Velma was told to start counting backwards from 100. So she started, 100, 99, 98. Her voice slurred into silence and she started to snore. Her breathing got lighter and lighter with each breath. Then her skin turned an ashen gray. The monitor connected to her heart showed a flat line. At 2.15 a.m. on November 2nd, 1984, Velma Barfield, serial murderer and born-again Christian, loving mother and killer of her children's father and grandmother, was dead. Since the reinstatement of capital punishment in 1976, Velma was the first woman to be executed and was the first woman to ever be put to death by lethal injection. At 2.25 a.m., her body was whisked away by a waiting ambulance. 
past the crowds of pro- and anti-capital punishment demonstrators who had assembled outside the prison. She had requested that her organs be used for transplant purposes. Unfortunately, this was not possible as her heart had not been beating for 10 minutes and could not be restarted, although attempts were made by the transplant team. Her corneas and some skin tissue were still able to be used, but that was it. Barfield was buried in a small, rural North Carolina cemetery near her first husband, Thomas Burke. So just to paint a picture, I am going to read you two articles from the New York Times that were written during the days of the execution. The first article states, A moment after she uttered a final apology for, quote, all the hurt I have caused, end quote, Margie Velma Barfield was executed here this morning for murder, the first woman to be put to death in the United States in 22 years. Prison officials said Mrs. Barfield, 52 years old, was pronounced dead at 2.15 a.m. today, 15 minutes after she had received a lethal injection of procurionium bromide, a muscle relaxant intended to stop her heart and her breathing. Witnesses to the execution said Mrs. Barfield, who was convicted in 1978 of killing Stuart Taylor, her fiancé, by putting poison in his beer, died peacefully with no apparent suffering or pain. She had also confessed the fatal poisoning of her mother and two elderly people for whom she had been hired to care, although she was not tried for those slayings. Later in the day, while speaking to reporters, Governor James B. Hunt Jr. of North Carolina strongly defended his decision in September to deny clemency for Mrs. Barfield and described it as the kind of, quote, tough decision, end quote, he has often had to make as governor. Mr. Hunt, a Democrat, is in the final days of a close and bitterly fought race for the Senate here with Jesse Helms, the Republican incumbent. The second article reads, Margie Velma Barfield, the first woman executed in the United States in 22 years, was buried here today in a small rural cemetery near her childhood home. About 200 friends and relatives circled Mrs. Barfield's coffin under cold, slate-gray skies as the Reverend Philip Carter, her chaplain at the North Carolina Correctional Center for Women, read the 23rd Psalm and the other Bible verses that had been chosen by Mrs. Barfield for the occasion. She was buried near her first husband, Thomas Burke, whom she married in 1949. Earlier in the afternoon, about 115 people attended a memorial service at a funeral home in Fayetteville, about 15 minutes north of Parkton. Quote, Velma was no stranger to suffering, end quote, Mr. Carter said at the memorial service. Quote, she knew the pain of unhappy childhood and was keenly aware of the pains of guilt. She knew what it was to sit in a prison cell and face a death sentence, end quote. With this execution... That definitely made history. So here are some t- statistics on that. She was executed on November 2nd, 1984 by lethal injection in North Carolina. This was the 18th murderer executed in the U.S. in 1984. It was the 29th murderer executed in the U.S. since 1976. She was the first female murderer executed in the U.S. since 1976. It was the second murderer executed in North Carolina in 1984. It was the second murder executed in North Carolina since 1976. 
And she was the first female murderer executed in North Carolina since 1976. So she definitely made history with that execution. Yeah, definitely. So, Tay, I have a few, like, thoughts that I'm, like, interested to kind of hear what you have to say on them. Okay. So... One of my questions as, you know, I'm researching this case and stuff, one of the things that kind of came to my mind was, how do you categorize Velma? Okay, so to be more specific, do you see Velma Barfield as a monster and serial killer or just a poor demented soul whose brain was completely destroyed by drugs and who just always needed more money to pay for them? I go back and forth. Um... But I do think that I think I'm leaning more towards it's changing because of the drugs. She never because if you think about a lot of like serial killers, Mm -hmm. their upbringing was different from her upbringing. We went over it in the beginning. She wasn't killing animals. She wasn't abusing or torturing other kids or like, do you know what I'm saying? So like like the generic signs of a serial killer were not there. We're not there. And then once she started to get addicted to these to these medications, that's when we started to see the shift and even then I I don't think I think she meant to kill with the poison I mean she literally burned her first husband's body in the house that wasn't an accident like she just left her cigarette there on the end of the bed and walked out of the house Mm -hmm. but so I do think like she probably had anger issues and whatnot not that anything that she's doing is okay but a part of me does think that it was hugely affected by the drugs and the effect that it had on her brain. Okay, so you made, like, a really good point that I never even thought of, that, like, there was no history of that in her upbringing. Like, I didn't she even think of that. She mentioned a little bit of her of her dad, like, raping her, you know? But even, you But she know, had nine siblings, or mm-hmm. I think it was her and nine... nine. There was nine total of yes. them. So her and eight other siblings, and all of them None were of like... Them stated that. No, that didn't yeah. happen. And so if you Which, don't have that, then there's literally not a single sign. Yeah. I mean, it, it could have still happened. We don't know for sure. You know, we're just going off of the word. But yes, if that is the only sign that there is, mm-hmm. that's that's... I don't want to say that's nothing, but that's not a huge sign that we typically see in a lot of serial killers. Correct. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, okay, so my opinion, um, I kind of am the same where I kind of go back and forth. Um, and the reason is, is because in our, like through our research with serial killers, right, a lot of things that we see is trending, right? And one of the things that's very, very, very common is that once they make that first kill, it's almost like a thrill or even if they don't necessarily see it and they feel like in her case that she needed to, it, regardless of the reason for the killing, it gets easier. Mm-hmm. So she made her first kill. That was her first love, her first husband, the father to her children. She was able to move on from that. So Within, nothing is like, going to... Remember, it was immediately, very fast too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was a very fast And so transition. she's able to get through that. She's able to get through the next one and the next one and the mm-hmm. next one. Who knows if she truly loved these men or not along the way we don't know she could have this could have all been a ploy for financial gain to support her drug addiction with Mm -hmm. prescription medication so we don't know exactly how she truly felt about all of these men maybe she really did love them maybe she didn't but i don't know about you but true love to me doesn't equate to murdering somebody absolutely not so i it's hard because we do see that it does get easier after they commit the first one and especially when she got away with it it was easy to continue killing at that point. She had a very 
focused mindset of this is the life that I have chosen to be, you know, on this path and I'm going to continue it no matter what. I'm not going to get help or I'm not going to like there nowhere in here did it say anything about her attending a meeting or, you know, going to, to talk to a counselor or to seek help and get off of these drugs. So she wanted to be on them. And then whether she meant to become addicted or not is, you know, probably not. Obviously she had a family and everything. She probably didn't mean to become addicted, but when she did, she never made any efforts to become not addicted to never address that drug problem. That that's exactly what it is. I don't think she realized that she had a drug problem. Mm -hmm. Probably not until maybe like the second or third murder. But I mean, her, she had so many problems though with her first husband of her and her, him and her kids saying, you know, like, we're worried about you. You're overdosing. We're mm-hmm. finding you unconscious. You're losing all this weight. Yeah. You know, all these things. And I'm sure, like, just to play devil's advocate in this, too, I mean, the kids heard them bickering, and a lot of it was because he was drinking a lot. So for her, she probably was like, I'm losing weight. I'm stressing out. I'm fainting because of his drinking. Right. Do you know what I'm saying? And so she could have seriously just, like, pushed that right. up all upon him. Right. And I mean, I know we're all crime addicts here, but um, like when you become addicted to a, a legitimate substance or something, you know, along those lines, any, addicted to anything, you may caffeine. not necessarily... Oh, coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, my name is Kylie and I'm addicted to caffeine. I'm pretty sure we've probably all seen that TV show or heard of it or seen the commercials for it or whatever, where they, you know, get every all the loved ones together that surround this person that has an addiction and they address it head on. The point is, is that, you know, like she may not necessarily have known in the beginning, like also on the, the side of devil's advocate, like she may not necessarily have known, even though her family is screaming at her, like, you need help. Are you okay? What's going on? Da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. She may have been denying it, but this did go on for many, many, many years. And she went through how many unsuccessful marriages, only unsuccessful because they died. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but I mean, if you look at it, like, and this is just like, from my perspective, looking in, this is nothing that she admitted or said anything about, but it doesn't appear that she was ever truly happy after that surgery. No, she was constantly in pain. And she's saying like, oh, you know, I loved my husband. And so maybe that happiness was temporary, but she was never like eternally happy as when she was, when she had her first love, her first marriage, her two kids, she was involved in their lives. She was, Mm -hmm. you know, raising them. All of a sudden they become adults. She kills her first husband. She becomes addicted to drugs. She doesn't feel as womanly because she Mm -hmm. no longer can provide children for any man, let alone the one that's dead. Um, I mean, she, you know, so all of these things are going against her. And so I do feel for her on that sense. But the other thing that just tears at me is the fact that one, she had to choose, like she had to make the conscious decision to do it. Um, And then she had to go to the store to purchase. I mean, it's intentional, you know, it's not like she she happened to have it. She stated that she read. This could be fatal if swallowed. Yeah, she knew. She, she read she the warning label. That the, yes, the mm-hmm. warning label was read and she still purchased it. And then and then continued to give it to them and watch them sit there Multiple and times. literally, I mean, that's torture. Yeah. That's, I agree with the prosecutor's statement in that like these were That's sick and torturous. It's not just like she did it, walked away. She wanted to see them torture. Yeah. And if it didn't work the first time, that's fine. Let them recover and then do it again. I mean yeah. I'll do it stronger next time. Right. So it gets it's hard because like you want to feel for her, okay, she was 
addicted and she made a few mistakes. Well, okay, that cost a lot of loved people, like a a lot of people, their loved ones, you know? These people were loved in the community. They had kids. I mean, Mm -hmm. she married men who had kids from previous women, whether they were widowed or divorced or whatever. It's, I mean... I don't know. I'm kind of with you. I'm kind of in the middle of it. I feel like I could be easily persuaded to either side if there was a strong argument, but I don't know. So that's a tough one. Um, I just kind of wanted to hear your opinion on it. But um, the, the one thing that's for sure is that what she did was a permanent solution to a problem that That was very temporary. Yeah. And it was all because she was committing fraud and didn't want to get caught. Mm -hmm. She didn't want to go back to prison. So, I mean, we're not going to really get into the debate here of whether capital punishment is right or wrong or anything like that. Everybody, you know, can have their own opinion. And luckily we are in the United States. It is a free country and we have every right to think how we want. Yes. So without debating that too much further, um, you know, just talking specifically about this case. But I do have a couple other thoughts that I want to pose to you. So... Um, in every single death sentence case, if you start looking into them, there's going to be something to look at or grasp onto. You know, it could be they had kids, they were on drugs, they, whatever the situation may be. In this particular case, do we hold on to the fact that she's a devout Christian and was a positive role model for all the other female inmates and all that kind of stuff once she got off of drugs? Or do we focus on the fact that she committed multiple murders, some of which were her direct relatives and loved ones, without even flinching? And this was all, again, just to support that prescription medication drug addiction, which is causing her to commit forgery and then ultimately death. So what do we hold on to? I mean, do you hold on to that murder persona or do you hold on to that rehabilitated persona that she appears to be put portraying nobody knows mm-hmm. you know we'll never know but what what do you hold on to this is another tough one and i i personally want to grasp on to the fact that she found peace mm-hmm. and tried to better what life she had left mm-hmm. by helping that 15 year old that was placed in the cell right next to her. Yeah, really good point. And, you know, mm-hmm. because, okay, when we're, when we're looking at the whole prison system, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. the jails and everything, they're, they're technically not always meant for your forever there. Like it's not meant for that. It's meant for you to, to figure out what you did wrong do you like take your time or get your time, serve your time Mm -hmm. and then go back up into the world and do better. Mm -hmm. Is that not like, you know, that's like the whole process. That's the whole reason why it was created. Right. Right. And I mean, and then some extensions, right. For life sentencing. But even then Mm -hmm. the hope is still for you to learn your lesson, learn your lesson. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do what you can to make good of what you have left on this earth and in her sense you know hopefully from what we're seeing is that she made peace with her soul and she repented with Mm -hmm. her sin Mm -hmm. she did what she could with who she can within the small walls that she was placed in and then she left the earth right you know and and, yeah so i I think a lot of it is depending on you as a person, mm-hmm. what you believe in, mm-hmm. beyond what we have here on earth. Mm-hmm. And, 
you know, if you want to think of the good of people or do you want to think of the bad? Mm-hmm. You know, sure. I mean, definitely what we just went over, it's great for statistics and it's great for knowledge. But at the end of the day, personally, I want to see all of this and read all of this, see everything bad that she has done, but then see what she's done good at the end of the day. Right. You know? And something that I think like you could also kind of interpret this either good or bad, but honestly, like she committed the murders. There's no question about whether she did it or not. And the way that the law stood at that time, in that era, in that state, under those specific conditions and laws and everything like that, she had to answer to those crimes mm-hmm. and to in order to be held accountable her result was ultimately to be executed and she did i mean she did follow through with that right she mm-hmm. was accountable for her actions she never went back and said anything like oh i never did it or anything like that i right. mean she did continue the one thing that does bother me though is that like even when her son asked her she still couldn't give him a straight answer oh i don't really remember so you remember enough to be able to confess to it and to sit in a in trial and Mm -hmm. go through all of that get on the stand say what you say and then your son asked you to your face oh i my my brain is kind of mush but i think so Mm -hmm. i mean i just kind of wish she was a little bit more like yes and i'm sorry we've kind of read through her relationship with her son though like she was hurt that he found someone for himself. Mm-hmm. And so I think that plays a lot in this aspect that you just mentioned. She was probably, she probably didn't feel ashamed in front of anybody except for his, her son. Right. Even in front of like these complete strangers, you know, and mm-hmm. like the trial and stuff, she didn't care. But when it was coming to her son, like her one and only son, mm-hmm. that's probably where she felt the most guilt and she couldn't handle it. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah that's a really good point it's definitely um i mean that's the person that you're right she ended up confiding in him before anybody else Mm -hmm. so i mean yeah you're absolutely right but okay so let's we're gonna go back to playing devil's advocate really quickly so let's say that we feel sorry for her and we let her out would she continue this pattern and do it again at the first sign of someone catching her forging a check or stealing money from their pockets because here's the thing Mm -hmm. on that She said that she didn't want to go back to prison and that she was willing to kill to make sure that that happened. She did not want to go back to prison. So Mm -hmm. she had a prescription drug medication. She was going to continue to forge until she got caught. Even when she did get caught forging, she still continued to do that in even worse. Well, I don't want to say even worse capacity because initially she was killing her own family. Then she goes outside of her family, starts working for the elderly and killing them off too. Mm -hmm. So now she's killing random people in the community and multiple communities. Mm -hmm. Um, And then doing it all because she wanted to support the prescription medication Mm -hmm. addiction that she had. And she didn't want to go back to prison. And in order to support that, she had to get the money. She didn't have the money. She stole it. Mm -hmm. So my question is, I guess, like, (laughs) if we, if let's say they let her out, let's say they commuted her sentence to life with the possibility of parole. She made parole. She gets out. What happens? Does she recommit? I would hope not. (laughs) (laughs) And I say that because like maybe if this was in the sense of like after she went through her withdrawal Mm -hmm. and she devoted her life back to Christianity and like stating that she had the Holy Spirit living in her, maybe at that point if she was released, she wouldn't. But at the same time, 
she'd definitely be tempted many times, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, I, I can like almost envision her thinking like, well, this is what I didn't get away with last time. So this is what I have to change in order to get away with it this time. Mm-hmm. You know? And once you're um, an addict of like anything like drugs, especially with, since that's what we're talking about, per- prescription drugs specifically, mm-hmm. you're once you become like sober, you're always in recovery. Yeah. So who's because to say like, she doesn't I mean, have a stressful day and exactly. gets her, or needs another surgery? I mean, she's yep. going to get old, needs right? Another surgery, yep. falls and has an accident, has a major headache, wants to take some ibuprofen, like marry somebody with access. Yes. I mean, so it's crazy because like our world is so open to these medications, mm-hmm. and a lot of them can be very addictive. So that's the scary part. So I, think, like I said, I'm going to be hopeful, and I'd hope that she doesn't, but. I am going to be honest in the fact that she would have a lot of triggers and a lot of, like, it'd be difficult for Mm -hmm. her, for sure. She wasn't in prison long enough for, like, the world to have, like, completely changed. You know what I mean? She was only in for six years. So Mm -hmm. I would like to think, like, let's say she had been on death row for 30 years or something like that. Then I'd be like, oh, like, you know, she, you would hope that she had become rehabilitated in that time. Even in six years, you would hope that. But... Um, you know, that she would get out, the world had changed, maybe resources had become more available than what she had before, you know, maybe she had been provided opportunities that she didn't have before, whatever. But I just feel like in the court over the course of six years, it's not like the entire world outside had changed. I mean, you know, it it progressed for sure, Mm -hmm. but it didn't completely change to where she may have just been returned right back to the same exact situation that she Mm -hmm. was in before. Mm -hmm. I mean, you just never know. And like you said, it's okay to be hopeful because we don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so mm-hmm. I agree with that. Um, but I also agree with that there is a heavy concern for me that she would just go right back. And I mean, we will never know, but yeah, I li- I would like to think the best in people. But I mean, it, it just baffles me that something so small escalated to something so large, like yeah. becoming a serial murderer over forgery, which is potentially... Yeah, which is your hysterectomy. Yeah, and depending on what state you in and the circum the state you are in and the circumstances regarding your case, like forgery could potentially even be a misdemeanor. Mm -hmm. So I mean, around something that's so minor, it escalated into her being a serial murderer. Like I just, yeah, it's hard for me. And it it was, I mean, it was over the course of many many years. I don't think she even realized that that's like what she's described as at the moment, at the time. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so let us know what you think. Um, go on to our website, crimeaddictspodcast.com, and leave us a comment, leave us a review. Let us know what you think in response to these questions. So what I had posed today is, one, is Velma a monster, a serial killer, you know, um, somebody who even killed her own loved ones, and she didn't even flinch to support her prescription medication drug addiction, or is Velma Barfield a poor, demented soul whose brain has just been destroyed by drugs and she just always needed more money to pay for them, but she was a devout Christian and was a positive role model for other female inmates once she got off of the drugs? So which one do we hold on to? And then the second question that I posed to her is, if we were to let her out of prison would she do it again? Would she recommit the same crimes again? Or was her devout Christianity a big enough change to where we wouldn't be seeing that had she been released? 
Um, okay, Tay, I have a fun fact for you. Let's go. Okay, so there's a country singer by the name of Jonathan Bird, and he is the grandson of Jennings Barfield, right? So one of her husbands that she killed, okay? So Jonathan Bird, country singer, he wrote a song called Velma from his album called Wildflowers, which if you listen to this song after you've heard this story, which I encourage you to do, but it gives a personal account of the murders and the investigation. That is so cool. And it's crazy because it, it really kind of does. I mean, it obviously doesn't go into much detail as right. we did here, but it's really kind of interesting. I don't know how many like of these cases that we'll see that a song was actually made about right? somebody. And it, it's kind of funny because he goes into the fact that, you know, it's his grandfather and that he never got to meet him and mm. that kind of stuff. So I encourage all of our listeners to go listen to this song and come back answer our questions that we have posed and let me know what you think of that song. And with that, Crime Addicts, we will wrap up this week's episode on the first woman to be executed by lethal injection, aka Death Row Granny. Come back next week, Addicts, for another CA meeting. And until then, stay alive, stay alert, and and stay stay caffeinated. caffeinated.